Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm April Fallon. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody, this is April Fallon, your host of Adoption Now, telling your adoption story on your adoption show. Here we are in season seven. So exciting. Thank you for celebrating Adoption Month with us. If your family is celebrating an adoption, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at adoptionnowpodcast.com. If you're new to Adoption Now, welcome. We are a community of adoptees, birth parents, and adoptive parents. As the adoptive mother of four children, I am so grateful for the connection this podcast has brought our family. And I think you know that because every time I interview, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is for us right now. We needed this information. I do love getting your messages like this one. April, greetings from the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. I just had to reach out and say that I've been enjoying your podcast immensely in every aspect. I've cried, laughed, felt seen and understood and comforted by listening to your podcast. I am so thankful a dear friend who told me about your show just a few months ago. Checking my Spotify for a new episode from Adoption Now has become my daily routine. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for such a sweet, sweet resource. My only regret with Adoption Now is that I wish I had known about this community sooner. The stories shared on this podcast have helped me process my story in such a positive, understanding, and encouraging way. I cannot thank you enough. I would love to share my story someday with the Adoption Now family. I am an adoptee from Ethiopia, Africa. Can't wait to meet her. I love this. And last episode was an adoptee. Today is an adoptee. It's just very, very exciting to know that we are reaching our full community it encompasses everything that we are here. And I love that adoptees are getting what they need to finding their journey, to finding their biological stories. Today, we have a very, very cool story. This guest is also from Pennsylvania. You know, last week's was from Pennsylvania and today another one. So shout out to your great state. Michelle Fisher, welcome to the show. Thank you, April. It's great to be here. I can't believe that we connected and such a crazy story. My husband started working with you and he's like, oh my gosh, this lady I met, she's an adoptee. And I'm like, no way. What's her story? And it just helped him know that he was kind of on the right path when he was, you know, pursuing you guys, talking about working with you. It was like, there's all these like steps, right? That Noah has gone through when he partnered with you guys. And it's just very cool. Yeah. I really think there were a lot of synergies and a lot of not coincidences, but certainly a lot of connections um, when we started talking with Noah. And we're thrilled to have him um, as part of Coastal Insurance Consulting. Yes, he is also super happy. And I was glad to meet you and hear your story, which is like wild and has many twists and turns. But let's start at the very beginning. Do you know why your adoptive parents chose adoption? Well, they, you know, this was back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, when they were making this decision, and they never really talked about the reasons behind it, but they definitely wanted a family, and they wanted to make sure that they had, you know, not just one child, but um, they had the opportunity to adopt several. And so fortunate for me, um, because they chose adoption, and they chose to adopt 
three children. I had a family of, you know, two siblings plus my, the parents that raised me. Okay. So are you the last child adopted? I was, yeah. The story is, and I always found this to be very interesting. So when my parents decided to adopt, they had the choice at the time of a little boy or a little girl. And they, and my mom always tells the story about how it was up to my dad and my dad said, well, we'll adopt a little boy. And so that's my oldest brother, Larry. And then four years later, they had the opportunity to adopt again. And my mom said to my dad, would you like a little girl or a little boy? And he said, I think, um, I think a little boy. And so they then adopted um, their middle child, my brother, David. And so at that point, and this was the 60s, and they adopted through the Philadelphia uh, Catholic Social Services. And there was a limit at the time of only two children, and they lifted that restriction. So at that point, my mom said, would you like a little boy or a little girl? And my dad said, well, let's adopt a little girl. And so that was me. That was where I was in the, um, like in the whole process of it. Aww. And what was your story? Did they know anything about your birth story? They, not a lot. So with Catholic Social Services, um, and I think many adoption agencies at that point in time, and probably still today, a lot of them offer what is called closed adoption as opposed Mm -hmm. to an open adoption. And with the closed adoption, Um, They give very little information. So my parents didn't know a lot about my circumstances, um, other than the fact that this was um, an agency that focused on um, connecting Catholic families. So they knew that my birth mother was Catholic, um, but they really didn't know where she lived. So they, you know, where they lived or what the circumstances were at that, at that point in time. Okay. You sent me your paperwork, not to jump ahead because you waited a very, very long time for that paperwork, but you sent it to me and it just made me sad that you were in foster care for as long as you were. And I know it's not even that long, but to think that your plan was adoption and then you waited four months. Mm-hmm. to go to your family just is surprising to me because I think about all of my my children and how we got them at birth. But I can't imagine if I had waited four months. Four months is a long time to attach to a new person. But back then, that was the thing. I agree with that. And and it, and I think it was the, the thing. So, you know, again, I, I, I just started my, in April, you're right. I did start my research process very, probably later than maybe many people would. Um, I didn't want to start the process while my parents were still alive. I just felt that um, it would, I don't think, I don't know if they would really understand the reason why. And it wasn't because I didn't love them, but it was to learn more about health information and just genetics and things like that. But you're right. At that point in time, um, I think it was very important for the adoption agency to make sure that they were connecting the right families. So nowadays you hear about, you know, um, infants 
um, bonding with their their mom and their parents immediately. And that didn't happen, at least, you know, in the agency that I was adopted through. It took four months for them to connect, connect and have all the paperwork um, put together. And even that, and I, I, April, I'm not sure if I told you this part of it, but there was a whole year's period of time. So this is 1968. So in April of 1968, I, my parents came to Philadelphia where the adoption agency was. And they picked me up for the first time and they took me home and they had to wait an entire year for the adoption to become finalized and legal. So there was a year's period of time where my birth mother could have changed her mind and decided, or the agency could have decided that it wasn't a good fit. And then the child typically, um, I don't know how often this happens, but then would be replaced into a different foster family and the process would start over again. So my mom would tell me stories about how, and, and to me, it's, this is unimaginable that you, you bond with somebody for an entire year with a baby for an entire year and all that time knowing that something could happen mm-hmm. and that the baby could be removed from your, from your house and from your family. And they, the adoption agency, they would make random checks. They would just stop or they would call and say, Hey, we're in the area. We're going to stop by. So um, you kind of were on your toes for that first year. You are making me sweat right now because I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> and I realized that our social workers, we had our, from that time, it's funny when you say that because they were also like two and that's it. And she mm-hmm. also made me feel like when she came over, if the child was not attaching, she was going to place AJ with somebody else. And I just remember thinking, what are the signs that the baby's attached? Oh my gosh. And when she came over, I just remember sweating and like, oh, look at he's laughing and looking at me. Is that enough? I mean, you're just panicked, but that's not a thing. I don't think now, unless mom changes her mind, like mom and dad are like, this is not a good fit. Or it usually has to do with that when it, it comes to an agency pulling a child. But also with AJ, we had to wait six months. So the state that we were in, Colorado, you have to wait six months before you can finalize. And that seemed like an eternity that anyone could come out, grandma, aunt, mom could change your mind. And that we would lose this baby after six months was way, way too intense for us. That's why we didn't go back to Colorado to adopt. We went to a different state. But to think that your mom was like being watched for a year and mm-hmm. didn't know if you were going to be her forever child. That's just a lot of stress right. on a mom. Well, and I always, I always like when I tell this story, I, I, I want people to kind of imagine or visualize the time period. So this is now the late sixties and my adoptive mother to adopt was not allowed to work outside of the home either. So in the late sixties, it was more about was the house clean was your laundry folded and put away? Heaven forbid. I mean, I think about like my household and, you know, you, you have laundry about. It's not all folded and ironed and put away. But in, in this time period, if you weren't modeling the perfect American home life where the husband worked and the mom stayed at home and raised the children, or heaven forbid they show up and don't forget, I have two older brothers, right? 
that the the older brothers aren't fighting and 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 creating havoc while she's trying to portray herself as you know this calm, loving housewife mother because she's in this kind of you know interim period. I think that you know we don't have to go through those things now quite to that extent, but people do forget that that is a side of adoption that is really hard is that for that time period, you are being watched. Everything you're doing is being watched. Now, does your house have to be perfect? No, we're not, you know, and parents can work. But I remember being in trouble because I gave AJ peaches. Noah, if he was here, he would laugh because I, I was like, I'm not supposed to give him peaches. And she's like, that's terrible. They are very tart. And oh. I was like, oh, she's like, you never give a baby peaches. And I was just thinking, right. Like, oh my gosh, are you going to take the baby from me? Because I, I will never do peaches again. But that kind of stuff, you know, when you have a biological child, nobody is coming in your home and questioning the first foods you give your baby or how clean your house is. You don't worry that this baby is going to be taken from you if you're a good mother. And in an adoption situation, it is like that. And it might be for a very short amount of time because you're having post-placement. But for your mom, I mean, that's a full year to to keep up yeah. that regimen. That must have been really, really hard. There are a lot of things, Michelle, that I read in your paperwork that made me feel like, oh my gosh, that would have been so hard. Or, or what about this? Oh my goodness, that your birth mom went through that we'll talk about in a second. Sure, sure. But you you were raised knowing that you were adopted, right? They obviously told all three of you. My parents did. And I always, I always, I was happy um, and glad that they, they handled it the way that they handled it. So I remember before I even understood what adoption was, I thought it was the same as being born. And so my, my mother had a book and she would read it. She'd read it to all three of us. But I remember sitting on the couch in the living room and her reading this book more than once. And it was about a, a mom and dad who went, who adopted a baby. And because they loved the baby and they wanted a family and they couldn't have children on their own. And in the, in the, in the whole process, I came to understand adoption just like it, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It was very normal for me. In fact, I would go around and I would ask my friends and my cousins. I remember asking my, my cousin, well, how old were you when you were born? Uh-huh. And my cousin would say, well, I, I was zero. I wasn't anything. She was my older cousin at the time. And I'm like, oh, well, I was four. She goes, what do you mean you were four? I'm like, well, I was four months old when I was, when I was born. So they, they made it so such a non-issue and I, I did have a close friend of mine from high school growing up where his parents went the opposite route and they did not share the information with him. And he found out, he found a letter um, uh, not intended for him to read and it, it really shook him. And to this day, I think it has, he was 18 at the time, I, I think it had a very lasting effect on him wondering why he hadn't been told for that period of time. And it, it sent him on a lot of searching. Whereas my search was more, I'm happy, you know, I grew up in a, trust me, it wasn't, you know, uh, an idyllic, uh, perfect household. We certainly had our dysfunctions like everybody did, but at least 
I, I always felt that I was part of that, the family, whereas he spent a lot of time searching because he didn't feel like he belonged anywhere. So mm-hmm. my search was more after my parents had passed away, really just wondering, wondering more to your point, April, about like the, my birth mom side of the story, like what, what prompted her to go the adoption route and what from a genealogy standpoint, what did that look like? Did you ever wonder before and just not say anything? I always wondered. I always wondered, you know, it, 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 you wonder who do you, who do you look like? Because growing up and my parent, and especially my dad would always say, Oh, you have hazel eyes, just like me. We look so much alike. And people would say, I look like my father. And, you know, depending on who it was, a lot of times you would just say, oh, and you, you wouldn't get into the story. But that was definitely, um, you know, why was I the height that I was? Why did I have dark hair? Why did I have hazel eyes? Who, do, who, who did I take after? And really, it was a lot less about my father's side of the family until I did the research. And then when I started researching both sides, I became more and more interested in, in his background and his side of the family. So it's interesting what you start when you start the process. I was like, well, I want to know health, right? Do I have any health, genetic health issues that I have to worry about? Or, you know, um, was she still alive or did she pass away and things like that? But those were just the initial um, things that I wanted to know, the more you know, the more you want to know, I guess is how I would. Put right. It. When you start that ball rolling. And how old were you when you actually started? Because you waited for both your parents to pass away. I did. Yeah. So um, I would say it, it's probably probably been in the last three or four years. So I was 50, I guess, when I started. And my kids, both of my kids were in college at the time. So I had a little bit, little bit more time on my hands. Growing up, you know, as my kids were growing up, I really wasn't, I, I would, it, it would be a passing thought, but it wasn't something that I, w- I wanted to put a lot of time and research into. And it, and it does. It, it, once you start, you find that you're, you spend, you're spending time doing that research. Um, so after my kids were in college and I was, you know, had a little bit more time, that's when I really started thinking about like, well, how do I, how do you go about a search? Um, and the only, the only identifying piece of information when I started was, well, knowing that it was the Catholic Social Services, and then I knew my birth mother's maiden name. I knew it was Harrison, and I knew that my name was Josephine Teresa Harrison, and that's all I had to go off of. Okay, so they send you this letter, you finally get through, and they give you yes. your information. And yes. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, if I got this information, this would be like, oh my gosh. Yes. So the story is, it turned out that my mother was actually, and the, the the letter that you're referring to came, it was from the Catholic Social Services, and they would only provide non-identifying information if you wrote to them and paid $150. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah. So right out of the gate, I'm like, hmm, do I want to spend $150? Well, I guess I'm at a point in my life where I do want to know some information. So yes. So they send this letter back and I find out on my mom's side of the family, again, no names. They don't give you any names and they didn't know that I had my, my birth name. So it was, my mother was 38. 
so here I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, I wonder if she was a young, uh, young unwed mother, but she was actually older. She had never married. She had an affair with somebody that she worked with who was married and who had a family. So think about this whole, you know, now my head is, you know, your, your mind is racing about here's this man who had a, his entire family and his career and everything. And he had an affair with this, this, this single woman. And my, at one point, I think in the letter, it says, I don't have it in front of me, but at one point she was ready to just kind of move away. She was, so I grew up in Philadelphia she was from Massachusetts, also something I had no idea. I just kind of always assumed she was local, but she was referred to the doctor in Philadelphia, and that's why she came to this area. And at one point, she was going to move away, but she didn't want to leave her widowed uh, father. So, and again, I always go back to the time period because this was the late 60s, and I imagine that her her siblings were, and I did find this out, her siblings were married and they had their own families and she was the single um, and she was the youngest and she was a female. And so she was left to take care of her, um, her father and she didn't want to upset him, hurt his feelings, break his heart. So that's really what prompted her to have, to go through with the adoption and then she moved back home. And what I found out um, in continuing my research later on was that she she never married. So I, I do somewhat imagine that she probably grew older. Um, she was very involved with her church. She was very involved with her father um, and helping her father as he aged. I so you did send me the letter. So I'm as I'm reading it, yeah. um, it's like so sad because. Here she is, this older woman. I mean, yes, your head would explode because yeah. you're thinking yeah. 16-year-old, right? Where everybody goes. Right. Like just a young girl. Right. Now she's she's not. And um, her mom had passed away. Her stepmother had Correct. also just passed away. So she's gone through two moms. Right. Um, it said that she had gotten sick and she got tuberculosis. And yeah. then yes, she, when yeah. she was young. Yeah. And then she's having an affair. And she <laughs> wants to move away and keep you like that made me sad that she she did want to keep you. But because her dad had gone through all of this, that she decided to yeah. place you. So it just felt like for her, it was loss after loss, you know, losing your two mothers, mm-hmm. trying to care for your father. Like you have mm-hmm. a man who's not committing to you and right. you place your baby. And yeah. It just like felt heavy. And April, it's it's so interesting that you give that perspective because you're one of the few people that have read that letter. I've shared it with you know people in my family. I haven't shared it with anybody outside of my family, actually. And your perspective is, I didn't really think about it that way. But, you know, like when you think about somebody who, you know, their their family was their duty um, to take care of, you know, to go through these losses. They did, they, her parents sent her away at the age of, I think she was 18. And at the time, if you had tuberculosis, they sent you to a sanitarium. Mm-hmm. Right. And 
that's where you stayed until they could, you know, until they could take care of the infection. And so she, yeah, she was forced to move away from home. And then she came back and she became, she went to junior college and she became a secretary, but she really dedicated her life to working and taking care of her family to the point where I, you know, and and yes, and she had this, this individual that I'm assuming she probably was in love with. She was with him for a long period of time. Like it was years. It wasn't like she just had, you know, she had been a sidekick for a little bit of time. It was years. Yes. And not, I don't want to, I don't want to liken this to, but I always kind of draw from like, if, if anyone has ever seen Mad Men, and this is, this is again, where I think there's this, this time period where there's a very similar storyline and I can relate to it because women, women had, there were certain things that they were required to act a certain way and be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and um, if you ever saw the the series or if you ever wanted to watch a series to understand that the fifties and sixties and how American families acted and interacted with each other, that's a, to me, it's a good time period piece. Um, and there's a lot of similarities there that they, they're able to kind of pull out. Yes. And we have to go back to that time that, you know, these were closed adoptions and she didn't have much of a choice, but it doesn't make the heart change. It doesn't make a mother's heart change. The desire mm-hmm. to raise your baby was still there. And that's what I was reading when I saw this. And I it also made me really sad that um, she named you after a sibling that had died, her yeah. sister that had died at two years old. And I thought yeah. that was kind of sad because I feel like if your mom had known that, she may have kept that as your middle name or, yeah. or put it in there somewhere. Yeah, that's also, so it's, again, I, I think your perspective is so interesting because you're reading it fresh where I've read it, you know, I've read it a couple of times and I've, I've actually used a lot of those non-identifying clues to, to, to identify people um, and I can talk about that real quick about for folks that are mm-hmm. looking to, to start their journey. But you're right. My mom and dad really didn't know her backstory. They didn't know that I was actually uh, named after her sister. She had a sister who passed away, um, I think, at the age of two. And I don't know the reason. But that's why she chose Josephine Teresa as my birth name. Um, so you're right. That's also a very kind of, um, yeah, like she went through that loss too. Yeah, right. You're right. She went through so many losses that she loved you. You don't give somebody a name that means a lot to you if you don't dearly love them. And so it just shows her love for you and her, she was just conflicted and she chose, you know, her parents and to take care of. And I know that probably people who read that are like, Oh, this is so interesting. And thank God you went to where you went and you know, it was supposed to be that way. And absolutely. I feel that way. But because I interview birth moms to adoptees and adoptive parents, I can go back to birth mom moments and just feel, Oh, like this empathy of that decision and what she was going through. And I know, I'm sorry if I have a different perspective. No, I love your perspective. I think it's so interesting because I don't have that perspective. So I never 
experienced it from the birth mom standpoint. I only experienced it as the adoptee. And, and I, and I saw the adopt, like my mom is the adoptive mom and things that she went through and things that she probably struggled with that some of it she shared. She would say, gosh, I don't know what I would ever do without you. I, you know, she was always very like, I can't imagine my life without you and your brothers. I can't even imagine like what it would be like if you weren't in our lives. Um, so she would share that. And she did at one point, she said, I think I would be really sad if you wanted to go and find your birth mom. Mm-hmm. But I think she said that out of this fear, I guess it would be a fear that I would find my birth mom and want to reconnect. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I wanted to reconnect when I actually did the search. Uh, I wanted to get the, get some facts, mm-hmm. get some understanding. And um one of the things when you and I were talking during one of our conversations, you brought this out, but I didn't start my search. When I started my search, by that point, both my birth mother and birth father had passed away as well. So there is part of me that wishes if I had started sooner, maybe I would have been able to meet them um, and, and get to actually know their personalities, but they had both passed by the time. And again, it was just, and I was already 50 when I was starting the research. Mm-hmm. So both of them had passed away. Did you connect to anyone in the family? I made one connection. I was very, very cautious. I I feel, and part of the reason it, it took me, that I didn't want to do the search was kind of thinking through, well, what if I do find a family or what if they find me and it it's disruptive. I didn't want it to be disruptive to my family and I did not want to disrupt someone else's family. And so a, a second cousin, so I did the DNA, I did the DNA um, um, testing to, I could, based on the information that I had gotten from the agency, I was able to piece together who my birth mother's family was. It was that and Ancestry and just doing a lot of like kind of um, searches on like newspapers.com. But I didn't have it. I still didn't have any solid information on my dad's side. So I did the DNA testing. So anyway, so it came back. um, I have hundreds, hundreds of DNA connections, but it was the second cousin on my father's side that reached out to me and said, hey, I happen to notice that you're part of this ancestry tree, I never realized that um, my, the, my birth father, whose name was Reginald, I didn't realize Reginald had a daughter. <laughs> so I, what I hadn't realized was my tree was public. I hadn't made it private. So he found it. And he's very, like, he is, um, this is like his passion. He's into ancestry and mm-hmm. genealogy. And um, he actually traced that side of the family goes all the way back to the Mayflower, which is a whole different oh my story. But in all of it, there was a Mayflower connection and a uh, Daughters of the American Revolution connection, Civil War connection, which now I'm, I'm kind of fascinated in that piece of it. But And I'm giving you a long answer. But the only person I've talked to is the second cousin who actually gave me, like, it's crazy, never knew this individual, but we became pretty good, like, like we'll communicate back and forth on a regular basis. And he was very, very open um, about finding me. Um, 
And then that led to a conversation with my half brother and that's it. So those were the only two conversations I've had with people. So I'm dipping, dipping my toe in the water. Oh my gosh. Wait a second, Michelle, like you have to say, Hey, I'm a product of your dad's affair. Right? Like it's not just you they probably don't know anything about you. Well I mean what a twist. I mean not that you would say that, well, but kind of you would be exposing, is, you know, what potentially yeah. they don't know. I mean, did that make you're, you stressed? Right. Yes. And that's why I was so hesitant about really doing anything more than dipping my toe in the water. And so, of course, my second cousin was like, oh, I talked to Uncle... And right out of the gate, he became very familiar. He's like, oh, I talk to Uncle Dickie all the time. I'm going to talk to Uncle Dickie and see. And I'm like, well, hold on. Maybe, you know, he's 80 some years old. Maybe he doesn't really want to learn about, you know, this child that he, you know, that he knew nothing about. And um, so the Uncle Dickie's I call him Uncle Dickie only because I, I find it so funny that I don't know anything about this man yet. You know, my cousin's like, oh, Uncle Dickie. Well, he was not real thrilled. Um, he did not believe the story. But my half brother, yes, um, he was pretty rational and open to the conversation. And yes, it, it certainly, I think he was also piecing some pieces of his families puzzled together. Um, and I think this kind of, he wasn't overly surprised, but, um, ha, you know, had really no confirmation that there had been that affair until So he didn't until know <laughs> of any affair? Well, so this is, again, the story just continues to get more complicated because they, they knew that their father had had an affair, but they believe it was with somebody else. So this is actually a second affair that they were finding out about. Oh my gosh, this is like a movie. It's a a movie could be made out of this. It it honestly could be. And I I try, sometimes I kind of think like I look down on the meaning, like I'm kind of above the story and I'm looking at the story objectively going, wow, this is, this is, this is kind of crazy. Every, every time I learn something new, I'm like, this is it's just getting a little bit more crazy. Um, so by no means is the research done. And the other thing that I, I'll tell you real quick is my, the second cousin, his name is Mark. What Mark said to me was he was not surprised in the least because for as much of the research that he has done, he finds these connections all the time he found them in his family. He's found them, you know, in other um, families within the family. So I think with DNA, there yeah. are some untold stories, stories that, that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Un- yes, untold stories that are starting to come out. Um, sometimes I think they bring happy, um, you know, happy experiences. And sometimes I think they bring some sad experiences to light. But all in all, I still, I, I'm still glad I, I went down the path. Um, and like I said, I, I think I'm just scratching the surface and understanding the true ancestry and genealogy of what's going on. And, and again, April, I mean, what, hearing your perspective, 
is so interesting because there are things that I hadn't thought of as, as you're saying them. I'm like, gosh, my birth mother had a lot of loss in her life. I didn't put that aspect of it together. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the common question, and it sounds like you had great parents, but I think sometimes adoptees wonder, like, did she really love me? Did she really think about this deeply? What, why, how did she come to the conclusion to place? And a lot of times it's just out of complete uh, forcefulness, right? Like back then parents were like, you're doing this and there's no other option. But I'd like to hear certain parts of the story where you can tell she really loved you. And there's something to that. I think it's really, really important. I tell my kids all the time. And of course, we're in the age where it's open adoption for this very reason. But when they ask, like, how can you leave a baby at the hospital? AJ would say that to me. And I'd say, oh, she loved you. She knew that we were coming. And she did. You know, and I can tell him she loved you. I can tell everyone of my kids. I can tell Lily that her birth father was bawling crying and saying, this is your happiest day. And this is my worst day signing the paperwork. Mm-hmm. I mean, they loved their children, right? And so it just makes them feel like the decision was made out of love. It wasn't made out of rejection. It was made out of the very best choice for them and the circumstance. And that's what I see in, in your paperwork is that, you know, she had gone through a lot and probably pretty shut down, especially if she didn't ever get married and she just didn't go that path. Um, who knows if your birth father even knew about you? You know, who, who knows? It's a great unanswered question. I have no idea. And she did say she was going to go back to him, but that the relationship would never be the same. And that right. tells you that she was deeply heartbroken. I do believe, and I, and I do think the fact that she never married, she remained single. Um, I read her obituary when she passed away and it was, you know, it listed her brothers and their wives and that she was a communicant, a communicant at her church. And reading the obituary, you could tell that she lived, I'm assuming she lived probably a rather lonely life for whatever reason. And I think a lot of it has to do with when you're a, a caregiver for, so she's had this loss and now she's left caring for her father and all of those things mm-hmm. end up being isolating. And that's kind of what I imagine. Not that it was a sad life for her, but I think it was a life that was born out of all of the things that had happened to her, um, you know, her experiences leading up to that point. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to make the very best choice for you. And that's the heart of adoption, really, in so many cases that birth moms are making the best choice that they can for their babies. When we're talking about private infant adoption, it's like they didn't give up their baby. They placed their baby. They gave their baby right. life. And look how much you changed your parents' life and your brother's life and what a joy you are. And you were exactly where you were supposed to be and meant to be. So that's the beauty of the story. I do want to say before we leave, you have to give advice sure. to adoptees who are thinking of looking for their families and are just nervous about making their parents upset and just the whole process. I want you to give your advice, but I want to give advice first really quick because I guarantee that your dad was not thinking, your biological dad was not thinking that there would be Ancestry.com to link him to his choices. 
And so if you're thinking right now that you could uh, get away with an affair, don't do it. Because (laughs) if you end up having a baby and you want it to be secret, that baby can find you. Because we are seeing, like you said, more and more of these stories come out where people didn't even know they had a sister or a brother or adoption had happened. And you can't run away from the truth forever. And now we're seeing, you know, you're able to find your true story. So what is your advice for adoptees? Well, I think you're, I mean, you're spot on and I I have several stories. I won't share them today, but of people that have found, you know, through affairs and things like that, where I have one friend who has, um, I think he said he's got five or six brothers and sisters from other affairs and his mind is swirling. Like it's just crazy. So advice for adoptees, I would say one, don't let the fear of hurting your adopted parents or adoptive parents, um, talk to them, especially from health for health reasons, because it is important, um, to, to, to know your health background to the greatest extent that you can. So I would say that's one, one thing to think about. Um, I wasn't going to do the DNA search, but if you run out of, so Ancestry was amazingly helpful. I took the information, April refers to the letter. I took the information and I started plugging some things into Ancestry and it's an excellent tool. It really can help you put the puzzle pieces together. And that's really what it felt like for me was I was building the puzzle, still building it. And then, like I said, the DNA kind of helps to confirm. Um, and then my other piece of advice is to proceed cautiously and just think through the scenarios. If you do reach out to your birth families, um, how are you going to feel? How are they going to feel? Just kind of anticipate a little bit of that. But that's not to say don't reach out to them. I think that more often than not, they may want you to reach out to them. They may be, to your point, April, they gave their babies up for love and to make sure that they were well cared for. And so they may be desperately wanting to hear from the children that had been adopted and placed. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on today. This was a a really good conversation. As your story unfolds, you will have to come back on. Like if you ever meet the brother or meet anyone on your mom's side, you'll have to keep us updated. I certain I certainly will. I think there's more to the story. I'll um I'll definitely keep you posted. I think so too. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Take care. You too. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media. Thanks for joining us on your adoption show. See you next episode. Mm-hmm.